Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Actually, I'm two miles from central London. And do you work from home? Yeah, I do. I work from home anyway. And now during lockdown, obviously, I've been working from home full stop. But it's just, yeah, lockdown sucked. I'm an extrovert. I need people. So for me, it was it was not cool. Thank you. You've given your own introduction. It's Richard Barber in London, and he is an online marketing geek, as he describes himself. He is a very, very smiling, happy, crazy character who him and I share a lot of joy and a lot of fun times in South Africa. Our mutual friend, Bernd Hohlmeyer, mentioned him in his Triangle podcast uh, a couple of days ago. And <laughs> Richard is going to tell us about that very game reserve story where he drove past Bernd, leaving him in the desert for eight or nine hours, obviously not knowing that Bernd was there. Richard, awesome to have you on the podcast. It's so cool that you participated. You're one of those people that's perfect at storytelling. You have a jovial and great way about you. How are you doing today in London? What's going on, buddy? Uh, well, the sun's shining, which is always a surprise in London. I'm doing pretty well, to be honest. Lockdown finished last Friday. Got to go flying on my new Amiga X Alps 3, which is lovely. So fell in love with that. Not necessarily the greatest day for the sport otherwise, but yeah, we, we can brush past that pretty quickly. But yeah, no, I'm quite excited. The forecast for Thursday is suddenly now looking good. I think I'm going to be jacking off work on Thursday and uh, going flying somewhere. Sorry, where did you say you're going to be jacking off and then go to work and then go flying? Yeah, no. I'm just going to be getting in the car and driving to wherever it's best in the country, which I don't know where yet. The forecast is all over the place, but somewhere it has enough potential. It's going to be good. Everything else can go to hell. I'm going flying. Uh, several pilots have told me how cool it is to fly in the UK, Richard. They've, they've mentioned from, from uh, Charles Norwood to uh, Russ Ogden, uh, Jockey Sanderson, even Robbie Whittle, all of those guys have told me that actually in the UK, it's really not so bad. A couple of others also mentioned it. Um, just saying like it's so good when you can go and fly Craig Atwell, apparently. We got chatting uh, about him a few days ago. Yeah, no, I mean, the the, the, the UK is fabulous. Um, you've got beautiful, kind of green, lush countryside. Thermals are never that strong. Getting away from the hill is always the biggest bit of the day as soon as you're away as soon as you're up even then suddenly the day opens up and when you're flying cross country you have to worry about airspace a little bit and sort of try and dodge that but it's so beautiful you quite often have buzzards um, red kites flying with you it's mellow it's it's not like uh it's not it's not like south africa where when you hit a thermal it's like okay then um i'll just sort of go up a few octaves and slightly shit myself and then be like okay now bring it on in the uk it's just it's super chilled out most of the thermals two three meters a second you just climb up nicely you look for the next cloud you, cl you glide away and on you go it's um it's super nice well maybe that's what makes it super nice because it's actually kind of half mellow and a little bit more like we'd we'd like flying to be instead of lots of surprises and bam yeah, but there's something about the BAM. It's awesome. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that. 
<laughs> I, I quite I quite like my speaker occasionally going, oh shit. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with having to hang on and pray to baby Jesus every now and then. It's quite okay. Uh, that's maybe why we do the sport. Yeah, I think so. It makes us feel alive. And it makes us want to stay that's alive too. Uh, definitely, definitely. So, yeah, no. so uh, tell us the story first about Inverduan, where you kind of... Okay, well, ooh, where do we start? So I guess probably start the day before. Um, we'd, uh, we'd all gone flying. The conditions were okay. They weren't great. And we then went to Bivalac, uh, which is this beautiful uh, um, campsite place with a, with a, little, um, with a little lake, unsurprisingly. Um, had a couple of beers, and then we su- su- suddenly Bert was like, have you seen the forecast for tomorrow? It's like, yeah, I've seen the forecast for tomorrow. It's like, we could go a long way into the Karoo. And I'm like, mm, yeah, we could. Yeah, it's New Year's Day. Trying to find a retrieve driver for New Year's Day, not going to happen. And I was like, well, should we try? I was like, yeah, okay, fine, let's try. We then go back. Tarina and Flyers Lodge managed to hook us up with a, with a retrieve driver. And so there's then myself. Marcus Anders of Exalts fame, burnt, all going on this, going to go on this mission. So I go to bed early, which is pretty rare. Um, didn't really drink because I was so like, okay, this is an occasion when I can't really screw up. I'm with two proper pilots, one on an Enzo 3, one on a Zeno, and I'm on a ENC. This is going to be difficult enough as it is. And I'm flying through the middle of nowhere with no mobile reception, etc. This, this, this could go wrong if I don't actually pay attention. Wake up in the morning and my head like just feels like I've been smashed around the head 10 times. I go to breakfast, um, Bernd's eyes are sort of hanging out of his head in different directions. <laughs> um, he looks like absolute hell, possibly still smelling slightly of alcohol, but I mean, he's an airline pilot, so clearly that's my imagination. And then uh, Marcus was there as well, and he was just all, yeah, ready to go and um, very sort of conventionally German about everything. So that was cool. And so off we went to this takeoff site we'd never been to before. And I was sitting there feeling like, oh, man, I'm just feeling worse. My nose started streaming. My eyes were stinging. And I was like, I just can't fly. So we get to the site, site we've never been to before, nearly so first get chased down by some woman, the owner of the land, because we just drove past, we couldn't see any signs, and pretty sure she was armed. We calmed her down, paid her some money, went up the hill, and I was like, nah, I'm not flying. So the guys got ready, they took off, beautiful site, really high up, overlooking uh, Ceres. Um, and yeah, we, we were there. And- was it the Gado Pass, G-Y-D-O? Uh, no, it was basically there are a bunch of pylons. It's not a site that's really flown. There are like four or five tracks that you can find. If you... No, we did, it in a, we did it in our hire car, but let's face it, all hire cars are um, four-wheel drive. Um, no. <laughs> one way or another. So, so myself and the retrieve driver, we, we head down the hill, and we see Marcus and Bernd starting to make good progress. And when we did the flight planning, we did it all super zoomed out because we were intending to fly 300K. So um, I then go back into it, into Google Maps, zoom in, and up ahead I see Inverdorn Game Reserve. And it 
sort of like, uh, oh, cock-a-doodle-doo. I know that game reserve. It's full of lions. It's got kind of everything there. And it's it's a, almost a safari park. They have to actually provide the animals with a bit of extra food because otherwise they'll just eat everything. So it's like, oh, man, this is this is this this is not good. So I go onto my phone to send a text message. No reception. Uh, OK, right. Right. Well, let's go to Inverdorn. We can go and get a nice lunch there. Look at some animals and then we can uh, carry on when we can see that they're further up the road. So we drive um, at a. Uh, fairly unsensible speed there on and it, the road goes to dirt pretty much straight away but it's like, ah, it doesn't matter we're just going to this game reserve it'll be fine get there can we come in we need to use your internet we need to tell people and the guy at the gate's just like no one comes in without a reservation go away he's like no can i speak to your manager and i tried all my best how how posh can i be british but nothing was working um so i was like oh hell um what do we do and it's like, well, they're not going to land here. Um, we can't get reception. We need to try to warn them. So let's, the ground's a little bit higher up ahead. We'll go up there. We're bound to get reception somewhere. I turned on my international roaming, so I have access to all the networks. Um, and we drive nothing. And it's like, well, what do we do? Do we drive back? Do we keep going? It's like, well, we might as well keep going. We're going now. Um, and so we get uh, about another 50 kilometers into the middle of nowhere. All the farms and stuff, everything is abandoned. There is nothing going on here. And it's New Year's Day. And I was thinking, this would not be a good time to break down. So on we go. And then suddenly, oh, cock, we've got a a puncture. So (laughs) so, (laughs) I was was like, okay, we're now... Get out of the car. It's 38 degrees. Um, we, we, we're sort of going, oh. And the other guy's like, what do we do? So we go into the boot to get out the spare wheel. Spare wheel's there. There's no jack. And we're like, oh, okay. Now we're a bit, now we're, now this has suddenly gone from being quite funny to actually a little bit serious because um, we have not seen another car basically the entire time we've been, been out. So we've already been out for two, two and a bit hours. So it's like, okay, we, what do we do? So we, I thought, right, I'll use my inReach to send a message to people saying, hey, could do with some help here. They didn't reply. Even though I asked them, I put ACK, please ACK. No one acknowledged. They didn't realize that ACK meant acknowledge. After 15 minutes, I was like, I'm not sitting here all day. So managed to make a, a jack out of stones. So reversed the car uh, onto some stones, then put some other stones what? under the thing, drove it forwards, cleared it. Yeah, it's awesome. It, it worked. Um, changed the time wow. and then kept going probably two and a half hours further on this dirt road going please don't get another puncture if we get another puncture we're really in trouble because we've still not seen another vehicle on this road we're we're literally in the middle of nowhere it's hot as hell it's like this is just not good get back to the main road which is sort of maybe 40 miles um, southwest of uh, Sutherland so get on to that and we get to the first um, truck stop place and there's guys in there and we're like, um, do you have internet? We need to send messages. We've got to find out what's happened to these guys. And they're like, no, the first place is up the road by Sutherland. And it's like, oh, hell. OK, fine. So we bomb on to Sutherland, send messages through. The messages saying warning about the uh, the lions 
gets through. Marcus is then emailing us from the air going, ha ha, yeah, very funny. Not realising that we're being serious. Bernd, meanwhile, is saying, yeah, I know. I'm at Inverdorn. Where are you, you, you nice people? Um, and it's like, we're at Sutherland. We're waiting for Marcus. So we then go to the petrol station. We get, get um, we go there. It's like, can we change the tyre? No, it's New Year's Day. It's like, no, 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 we need to change the tyre. We've got to drive down these dirt roads. This is actually kind of an emergency. He goes, well, the, the owner lives two doors down this way. Go and knock on his door and see if he'll open up. Fortunately, the guy who I was with went and knocked on his door, was super nice, said he had this tourist with him. They're all idiots. You know, it wouldn't be good for South Africa if they have tourists dying. <laughs> so off we go. Marcus gets to... Sorry? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no. So many little side stories. I love it. It's great. <laughs> go on. So then, so then Marcus gets to, to Sutherland and we're like, oh, thank goodness, he'll land. Does he hell? He carries on for another 70 kilometres. So we're, we're following him in the car, another 70 kilometres going, it's getting late now. Mar- uh, meanwhile, Bernd is still sitting in outside the shed at Inverdorn. They've not let him into the place at all. He's just sitting by the guardhouse. Um, and I asked why that was later. And it turned out that uh, he had caused somewhat of a little bit of a, a, an issue. Him nearly landing in the game reserve with Marcus caused um, caused someone to have to jump on a, on a quad, not even in a car, to go and chase after them from the ground uh, because they wanted to be able to rescue them the moment they landed so they didn't get eaten by lions. <laughs> so they weren't very happy that their New Year's Day had been ruined <laughs> by these paraglider pilots. Anyway, so we picked up um, Marcus when he eventually landed and then we drove like absolute, well, I drove. I think my average speed was pretty much um, 100 miles an hour from where we were back to to Inverdorn. And we got home at uh, 11.30 into Porterville, having first got a takeaway as well, which when you sort of do the maths on the timings and the distances, it's like, mm, some, someone wasn't paying the speed limit that day. <laughs> And also, uh, was the whole exercise worth it? I woke up feeling like absolute shit warmed up. Bernd woke up with his one eye looking left and the other one right. Although he's an airline pilot and wakes up smelling like a distillery, that's because he knew that it was the 1st of January. He did it as hard as he could on the night before. Had absolutely no consequences to the next day when he should be going flying. Um, You know what? I think it was worth it because everyone made it. Bernd actually had good sense. He he said that, you know, after a couple of hours, an hour into the flight, just before he landed, he he was feeling he wasn't feeling good and he felt that carrying on would be dangerous. So he made a sensible decision. Just to just to put a little side note on there, I think what's quite important is when we are flying, we have to be conscious of how we are feeling. You know, you have to be honest to yourself because you're at the end of the day doing something that if you make a small mistake and you take your eye off the ball, you're in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what was nice was, you know, I made the decision not to fly and I helped with the retrieve. I hadn't been helping with the retrieve. God knows what would have happened. He wasn't used to using all these, all the tech and everything else. It could have been, you know, it was one of those things. It worked out really well. It really told me that if I'm going to fly in the Karoo again, I'm going to make sure that everyone has an in-reach 
Everyone has Jack comms, and it's all we have four by four. We know where the Jack is in the car because it turned out the next day that there was a Jack in the car. They just put it under the seat, under the front seat of the car. Never heard of that before. But yeah, I, I think it was a it, it was a real adventure, and it was it was really fun. But something to be really super careful. Crew or any kind of desert situation, any kind of place which is off the beaten track where there's no cell phone reception, whatever. I never used to fly with a radio for so many years. You know, even just having a mobile phone in the early days of us flying uh, long distance into R and stuff. Um, and you are going to tell us about your second trip to the R and that funny story. But basically, we used to, if we didn't have a satellite telephone, which is really the exception rather than the norm, um, you know, there was no cell phone reception. There was nothing like that. So oh, it's know. really <laughs> worth you know so oh, I, I mean know. greg hamilton yeah greg hamilton uh you know he tries a bowl um a volbiv uh, story on one of his videos and i mean that's turned into a very short experience that he said wow there i'm really flirting with the devil and uh or with baby jesus if you want it yeah i mean i think i think whenever you go somewhere whether it be india whether it be south africa anywhere where you're going out of the off the beaten track you need to make sure you have a have a safety team as a ground a backup. You have to have everything organized um, because when stuff goes sideways, it goes sideways really, really fast. And the next question I have for you, Richard, is you have moved from a swing RS system glider, a C glider, as you said, to an XL3 from Advance. Tell us about that glider. It's the first time you fl- flew uh, that you are flying a two-liner. And at the discussion before this, I know you am to speak, but I just want to say welcome to the two-liner club, my friend. Yeah, look, um, I've I've had an interesting sort of experience through paragliding over the years. And when I got back into the sport, as I, I will never fly anything more than a B. And then the RAS system came out and I saw the Agera. And so I was like, OK, this sort of looks like it makes sense to me and it, I think it will work. So I flew that for a year and a half. And when it first came out, its handling sucked, but the RAS system worked. It saved me on a couple of occasions. It's super, super works. And I really swear by it. And I've used it in India and I love it. I wanted to get into some hike and fly stuff and some hike and fly competitions. And I got hold of the Helios, which is the lightweight C from, uh, from Swing. And it's a beautiful handling glider, but its performance wasn't going to allow me to Basically, I wanted to beat a couple of my friends in the races. I was like, there's no way I can beat them on this thing. So I then uh, got got whiff that I might be able to get hold of a two-liner slightly cheaper, a, an Amiga X-Alps 3. Yeah, so I, I bought it. I had my first flight on it on Friday. And some people were saying it's quite rough. And to be honest, it's easier to ground handle than my, uh, than my uh, Agera. As soon as you're in the air, it just every time you hit lift, you go up. Your wing never goes backwards a millimeter. It's just doof. Uh, when you're climbing with with other people, you just know you're going to outclimb them every time. It's like, huh? right? You're at the same height as me, not for much longer. Bye. And then you go on glide, and it sort of feels like being in a uh, in a glider again. That when you when you just increase the speed a bit, it doesn't start dropping. You actually keep going, and so that's uh, that's super nice. Uh, yeah, I love that. I do want to say I see a huge, big innovation coming with the two liners in the C-Class. A lot of guys have been rumbling that and whispering in my ear about that kind of thing. So 
yeah, I think Dust of the Universe and uh, all of those guys will be expecting a whole lot of new fancy stuff and exciting. Maybe that's where the new times are coming. Um, uh, I, I totally agree. The the collapse lines coming back into the C class, um, I personally don't ever think they should have been ta- done because collapse resistance is almost as important as what happens when it collapses. But and by having a two liner, you're going to move the lines back. It's going to be it's going to be rock rock solid. That was one of the things I immediately noticed about this thing. It is rock solid. Uh, and when you're on the when you're on the on the rears rises, you can you can thermal it on the rear rises, and it's so flat, it's so efficient. Oh, it's sweet. Glad you like it. Um, I'm, I'm, it's like looking at a little boy who is playing with a little boy's toy. And uh, I don't know why I'm speaking with this uh, stupid French accent, but I am, and uh, it's fantastic. Well, you know, I'm always like a little boy with a new toy. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was going to make an OT comment. I think I'll just... (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous time. Richard, absolutely great. Uh, You're telling me a couple of fantastic stories here. Thank you so much for sharing it with me and the world. I I love what you're doing. Thanks. Thanks so much. Uh, As I said, uh, and I said it a couple of times, for me, it's like scratching in the stone, you and I. We are putting a little hieroglyph out there and we are just, you know, throwing it in the universe. Uh, Robbie Whittle the other day, I mean, just beautiful. Uh, Jimmy Pacher, he is a legend from the past. Andre Bucher is talking to me. Oh, there's a whole lot. It's so nice. Russ Ogden and, of course, Austin Siegel. They are all podcasted. They're all in the background there. 35 of them are out there so far. Oh, it's so nice, really. It's, oh, no. it's for done, me. You've done such excuse- an amazing thing getting this going. And what's more keeping it going because it's very easy to do four or five things and then go okay that was quite fun but to actually keep yeah. the momentum up and to keep the the discipline up is super cool and so well well done and uh, yeah the ones i've listened to so far they've all been awesome i'm having a lot of fun at the stage and if i if i'm not then i'll certainly change and stop and i agree with you that there'll come a stage where i'll say okay you know the project's done like i can see the end of series one insights already and that's perfect if I ended at 50 podcasts uh, in the first series and say, right, now I'm taking a break because I want to do it properly if I'm doing it. You know? So even the editing sitting here on the computer and, and uh, cutting the oohs and ahs and out of people's voices or the very seldom times that there's an irrelevant story or something, take it out. Oh, what a jaw. You know? For me, it's just a small party with myself here. I'm sitting in this bloody beautiful place and I'd love to go flying every day, but it's so breaking the rules. So you know what? Uh, I, I rather just keep it tidy. I go mountain biking, rock climbing. I have this fun game I play here on the farm where it's a lot of rocks around here. So we try not to walk on the vegetation. So you have to step from rock to rock. So sometimes a big stretch or a small jump or a whatever. And then it's, oh, I'm going up the hard route here. It doesn't matter. You're not trying to choose the easiest route up the rocks. Oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Thanks Thanks for your encouragement. I really appreciate it. It's really nice sometimes uh, to hear a compliment. It's good. Um, no, it's really, really good. And um, it, it's... I also think this, because this sport is so stupidly dangerous, there's no way around it, it is, that the more knowledge that's shared, the safer the community will be. If it's people realizing that, actually, yeah. you know what, maybe taking a proper GPS and having that stuff, whatever it is, if it helps keep people safe, it's that's worth it. Yeah, I mean, I found... And we have fun too, that helps. Yes, yeah, definitely it helps. I mean, uh, it's a... Uh, uh, I mean, so many 
unexpected guys have just come forth and said, for sure, for the sake of humanity, for the sake of flying. And let's let's admit it. I mean, at the end of the day, if one life is saved, if one if one uh, good time or somebody goes to India or Iceland or uh, Iran or Japan and uh, goes and see somebody that I know and says, oh, Steph, uh, you know, it's cool. If you could tell me, do you know someone in this place? I say, yo, there's the coolest person there. You have to go and meet them, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 all so good. Right. Tell us how you got into paragliding in 2004, you, you in Chamonix. <laughs> in uh, the Alps, in... Yeah, so, so, so at the time, I'd done quite well at work. Um, I hadn't worked very hard, but I'd come up with a couple of good ideas, which had made the company a lot of money. And my boss was very sharing, for which I am super grateful. At the time, if you were under 26, you could get, a, you could get an overnight train down to the Alps. So I basically just went down over a series of long weekends to the Alps to go and learn to fly in Chamonix. Or it was actually in uh, Planjou with a guy called Dennis Trott, who's quite old, quite quite careful, quite staid, sort of, and not, you know, kind of the opposite to, to me in many ways. But he uh, he taught me and that, that all went pretty well. And then my qualifying flight was... Uh, he was like, okay, we're going to do a cross country from, uh, try flying from the Breville. He put my radio on and what have you, took off and the radio didn't work. So I was like, <laughs> I was like, cool. And this is, this was the beginning of April in Chamonix. So climb out, climb up above the Breville, get to about 3,500 meters. And I think I'm like the world's best pilot because everyone around me is taking collapses all over the place. Um, and my wing's staying above my head. The fact that I was on an ozone mojo might have had something to do with that but I, I thought this was awesome and I was just loving it and we flew down to Planjou and unfortunately it turned out that I was actually flying it under the weight range which probably wasn't necessarily the best thing in Chamonix at that time either but it did mean I climbed really well but it didn't mean I glided very well so um, we didn't make make it to go on to the uh, go on to the Araby but still it was awesome flight qualified and it, I basically learned in Chamonix because I knew that I wanted to go to the Alps in the summer. I wanted an excuse to go and adventure in the Alps in the summer. And this was the way to do it. Yeah, the way to go. I mean, and Chamonix, I have to say, uh, I'd never been there before uh, September last year. And I passed on my way through Switzerland, which I'd also never flown like in the main part by Fiesch. And so, and I went and scoped it all out. Davos, uh, Fiesch, I hooked up with two super American guys. Traveled together so nicely, met some friends from the past, met some new friends, Raul, who did the podcast with me. Ah, great. Eh? And then I get to Chamonix uh, and Fred is there. I see Sandy Koshman, who I knew from so long ago. She's going to do a podcast with me. And uh, yeah, so nice. Such a good place. Yeah, I mean, I, I also, this, this year I had sort of one of my, I think probably my favorite stupid adventure, uh, where I, I was at the Brits in Spain. Um and I was looking at the, I always look at the forecasts for everywhere. And I was going to uh, the Alps the following week. So on the Tuesday, it was looking rubbish for the rest of the week in Pedro Bernardo. I look at the Alps and on Soaring Meteo, it's saying 5,500 meter cloud base. Wow. And I'm like, sorry, what? Well, that's, that's <laughs> that can't be right. So I immediately go onto Exit wow. Skies and check there. 5,200 meter cloud base. Okay. Wow. What about the next day? 5,100 5, meter cloud base. Bruce, and Bruce Zayman was with me. I was sharing, sharing a room with him. I was like, will you drive me to the airport? 
He's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I'm going to go and fly over Mont Blanc. He's like, what do you mean you're going to go and fly over Mont Blanc? I was like, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I can't be bothered with this. This is crap. Um, flying over Mont Blanc, way much, way more fun. So after a lot of begging and pleading, he agrees to drive me to the airport, get to the airport, lose my phone, which has my driving license, all my credit cards, everything in the airport. Fortunately, my plane's delayed for three hours. So I've been running around the airport for a couple of hours and I suddenly sort of think, right, I need to think now. And I remember that I've got find my phone on my laptop. So I use find my phone to make my phone ring on full volume, have one of the guys from the information center with his phone with him. And so it came up with a message saying, call this number. The police called his number, went and grabbed the pl- grabbed my phone. Wow. Ran to, and still had all my credit cards and my driving license, which is kind of important for the next week. So got on the plane, turn on Telegram. It's going bonkers because 100 people have just landed on the top of Mont Blanc. On the, that, was the, that was the day they all landed on the top of Mont Blanc. I get home at 11 o'clock, sort of eat some food because I haven't been able to eat because I've been running around like a mad thing. Get up at five, go to the airport again, get, get to Chamonix at 11 o'clock. Wandering around takeoff in my um, my traveling clothes. So I'm wearing a linen linen trousers, sort of pink pink linen shirt. Any Brits here? And this crazy uh, um, Canadian bloke goes, well, I'm kind of British. My parents are British, but I'm Canadian. Well, actually, no, I'm now Hong Kongese. Is that a thing? Uh, so, so we end up flying together and he, he gets to 5,500 meters above servos and then does one straight glide to uh to Dusard to go and pick up a new harness which i told him about a shop there that had the harness he wanted uh i flew over mont blanc landed one of my best friends from 10 years ago was in the landing field waiting for me he's seen on facebook that i'd put my live track on there and his wife had told him hey barbs is trying to fly over mont blanc so we went and had a whole load of beers together yeah it's just just perfect that sounds like a great adventure. I mean, that's a it's a bloody great story in itself. Excellent, yeah, yeah excellent. It was fun. It was fun. It was. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't the cheapest adventure I've ever been on, but it wasn't expensive either because I was on staff travel, and I think that obviously that's something. Just uh, Some, I find ways to make things cheaper for myself. Yeah, I mean, I love traveling cheap. You'll hear me in every single podcast I do. And anyone you hear me ever talking about traveling, I'm, I'm talking about traveling cheap. But, you know, there's pulling the arse out of it and there's cheap. And then there's uh, also sometimes permitting yourself something a little bit more expensive for luxury's sake or whatever it may be. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, yeah, it reminded me your story now of when I once went to the Dominican Republic bloody excellent place to travel and to fly all around there's this volcano in the middle of this island called hispanolia right it's a one one third of it is haiti on the west side and on the eastern it's like an egg yeah and, and you cut a third and a, and there's this volcano like right in the middle of it this whatever it was i think this three or four thousand meter volcano anyway and it's only 200 k's across the island and 600 k's this way so it's like in 200 k's you've got this three thousand meter mountain perfect and you can fly any side they have the the the, the winter months and the su- summer months and then there was cabarete which is a famous kiting place as you know i was like oh i'll just rent some equipment i rented equipment for dirt cheap spent three four days travel around i was the only person on the flight without going to an uh, all-inclusive hotel. 
you know, middle of the night at the airport, step out of this third world country airport, you're alone, it's just you and your glider, and everybody else is fucked off into a bus going off to the all-inclusive <laughs> hotels. And you and some bandido-looking guys go and find a place to stay. And the next day to San Jose and, and on the adventures. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Nah, that sounds, yeah. sounds, sounds like a fun, fun, fun adventure. Yeah, and of course, these days when you do that sort of thing, it's just so good because because WhatsApp and Telegram, you just ask, hey, anyone know anyone here? And sure enough, someone will hook you up with someone. And you know, if it's like, whether it be South Africa, whether it be India, anywhere I've been in the last few years, everyone is just so welcoming. And yeah, the, the it's just staggering. You, 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 and I just sort of think, gosh, I hope one day if some of these guys come to England, they can come and crash on my sofa bed, whatever, um, because I, I've been done so so well by so many people. I want to give back in some way. Oh, good for you, Richard. I mean, I think it's so cool. You know, um, in a podcast a couple of days ago with my friend Sammy in uh, Iceland, um, I stopped in London for a week on the way to Iceland. And I mean, anyone who doesn't know London or who hasn't been to London in 10 years, you you should go to London just to take it all in and enjoy and get some free museums. It's so cheap. You can eat cheese and sandwich. Cheese sandwich. I can live on cheese and bread for weeks and weeks, right, Richard? So I'm like, you can you can eat nuts and fruits, and the supermarkets are all there on every corner, and uh, you can just find a, a couch surf like Richard's place. You're gonna have hundreds of people coming, Richard. Yeah, not not hundreds, but but you know, for a few few days and stuff. Um, get in touch, and uh, I'll see what I can do to sort you guys out. I'm I mean it. Yeah, I know you mean it. And uh, Richard, you were going to say something about London uh, when I started chatting. Yeah, about just don't come right now. It sucks. <laughs> the fun police, the, the people. Oh man, I get so angry when I see people. So sort of, they've blocked off the benches in my uh, my district because they don't. You can't maintain social distancing. So if you're with a friend, you can. So I have uh, I have taken to uh, removing some of those um, when the guys aren't around because I'm just like no. There's only so much that, 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 that should be allowed. Yeah, Barney Woodhead was telling me that if you go and park your car in Wales or near a forest or something, they're going to slash your tires, jealous people and people who don't see the difference between us going flying. What the hell is it to anybody? You know? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the new sneaking society as well. I mean, I, I, I really hate it. Yeah, this sort of that the, they'll go and report you to the police and stuff. It's like they, they really would have done well as uh, Nazi sympathizers in the Second World War. I know that's a bit controversial, but I mean, really, at the point, people trying to go kite surfing there, I'll call the police. It's like, fuck off. <laughs> it's none of your business. I'm not doing anything dangerous, but you might need the emergency services. It's like, Have you done the mass? No, you haven't, because you're a moron. Um, anyway, sorry, I digress. Okay. <laughs> you know uh, thank you very much to our sponsor uh, the alternative british party <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that was the perfect part of the podcast thanks very much for that uh, uh, sorry about that um cool you're gonna I'm ask me about um my second trip to dar so this was back in 2006 i'd so i've been flying for two years I had about somewhere between 60 and 80 hours. I was constantly lying at that stage about my hours, saying I'd done way more than I had, because that way I could actually get to do the things that I wanted. And I'd seen this report about this little place in South Africa in the middle of nowhere where you could go and fly big distances and the wind was strong. 
So it's like, oh, this sounds easy. So I went there and my first ever day of the year before, I took off going down the runway, released, and suddenly I'm going up like a bomb, but uh, but my wing is collapsing on both sides and I'm sort of just trying to hang on to this thing. And I go, oh, fuck. Over the radio comes, don't worry, Richard, you're just in a bit of a dusty. It'll it'll chill out quite soon. And so sort of after about, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds, it did chill out and just turned into a nice thermal. But by the, I look down and I'm several hundred meters up because I've been climbing it over 10 meters a second. <laughs> so, which, uh, so I knew it was strong. And then uh, the second year I went back. Uh, first of all, I got told that I didn't need a car. I could just go on the bus. So having nearly got mugged twice at the big uh, bus station in, uh, in Johannesburg, um, just wandering around. Worst. Yeah, That's I the think- worst place in our country the train is the uh, the bus and train station the next to each other in, in downtown Johannesburg. Yeah. it is riddled with crime. Uh, I I know, and um, when I spoke to the guy who owned the place, not a very nice man. His wife's lovely, but he uh, he just laughed the next day and was like, "I told you you could do that. I didn't tell you you should." And I was like, "Okay, <laughs> thank thank thanks for that. That's that." You nearly got me killed, but, you know, don't worry about it. Anyway, so I got to Da'ar at sort of 2 a.m., dehydrated, hungry, tired, go to bed, get up the next morning. And because I'd been there the year before, they were like, you can go first off the tow. Great. So I take off. And it wasn't that strong at the moment I took off. But literally almost immediately, I started drifting quite well. And so took first thermal to 3,000 meters my radio wasn't charged. My phone had a bit of charge in it. I didn't have any water. <laughs> you know, sort of things you just don't do in Dar. And didn't really have a proper retreat yeah. system sorted out either. Um, go up. And then as I start coming down from 3,000 meters on my first glide, I'm uh, I'm sort of noticing my speed is increasing as I'm go- coming down. Uh, this, is, this, this is now getting a little bit sketchy. And about sort of 300 meters, I... St- try turning into wind and I'm going backwards slightly. So, okay, this this is suddenly no longer all the fun of the fair. And so I get down to 200 meters, still haven't found a thermal. And I'm like, okay, I'm now, this, this, this is quite serious. So I undid my chest strap and I undid one of my uh, leg straps um, because I figured that my only chance of surviving this landing was if I managed to, as I landed, pop my uh, leg strap so that I could uh, I could just be free, uh, free of it. But so I get down to about I know 120 meters or so off the ground, and it's rough as hell because it's windy as hell. Uh, Face into wind, and I'm going backwards at 15, 20 kilometers an hour, being thrown all over the place. And I'm like, now nah, th- if I land here, I'm dead. I-, I could not see where I was with the size of the boulders and everything else. No road anywhere nearby that I was going to be anything other than dead and probably over a long period of time. So I was like, fuck it, I'm running downwind and going to pray I hit something. If there's this much wind, there must be a thermal somewhere. Hit this thermal, turn immediately, lose it. Oh, Christ, go back downwind, count to three, and then I just buried my brake. Thermal takes me to three and a half thousand metres. So I do up my uh, leg strap, do up my chest strap when I got to the top. Call, call my girlfriend, tell her that I love her because I wasn't, I still, I still realized I had to land at some point. I wasn't quite sure how that was going to go. Yeah. They, then, then I sort of start going along and I, okay, I'll just glide and I can see the N1 is coming up not that far away. So I was like, great. I'll just glide down to the N1 
and then I hit wave. So my variator starts going four meters, five meters, six meters. Oh, holy crap. What am I going to do now? So, so, right, I'm going to have to try and spiral down because beyond the N, N1, as you know, as you're between Colesberg and Hanover, it, you've got the Middleburg Mountains ahead and nothing. So it's like, I've got to land there or else I've got to try and go over those mountains with this wind. I don't want to do that. That's that. My, my, my odds are not good. Bury my brake, start spiraling, start losing my vision, get to about 60% of my vision going, nap, pull out, then come out immediately. And again. <laughs> and after about 20 minutes, I managed to get down to the ground and I managed to land luckily behind a ridge, a bit of a sloping hill. The wind hadn't quite got there by the time I got down because I've been going pretty fast when I've been higher up. And, uh, yeah, I kissed the ground a little bit that day. <laughs> you sweated big, big drops. That must have been rougher than anything, Scrotum. Wow. No, that was, it was, it, 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 I, can, I can sort of live vicariously thinking about that one again. I can still picture the, the, the rocks, the way, every, I could probably draw exactly what was there at a particular moment as I was going downwind, sort of, just covering ground, praying to hit this lift. I, w I want to tell you that your gesticulations and the way you've just described that story, that you've got it so vividly in your memory from 14 years ago, mate, it must have been a really one that probably went down in your, like, uh, uh, how much did I love the flight or not love it? It went down worse than a pork sausage at a bomber's <laughs> Look, I think it took me a year to recover from that one. I think it, I, I really? yeah, because the, the problem wasn't actually the moment because I've had lots of scary moments. Yeah, I've been buried in avalanches and yeah, I've, I've done lots of stupid stuff through my life. But the difference with this one was that even as I was climbing up and even when I got to the top of that climb, I was thinking I've still got to land. And I just, at that stage, I just didn't know. I couldn't in my mind visualize how I was going to survive the landing. You know what it's like when it, when the wind really comes in the Karoo, it really comes. Listen to Neville's podcast. It's unbelievable about his 507 kilometer flight. World record. I suspect I, it will bring back memories. <laughs> <laughs> 127 Ks an hour ground speed on an old yeah. Omega six. I did over 105, pulling half brakes <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a DHV2. <laughs> so Uli Prince shows up in his old Mercedes S-Class uh, in uh, the R is the very last story I want to tell you. And today he's number three in the world in paragliding. Like, and he was just a junior showing up in the R with an S-class Mercedes. Show. Go and have a look at his website. It's unbelievable. And his stories he writes, so, so great. A little earlier, you said, Richard, about uh, jumping out of your harness. Um, that was your intention, of course, when you came into land. And I actually meant to give you a little comment on, um, on it. It's um, something I've done several, several times. I've been blown back many, many times. And um, the landing in a tree or whatever is a good idea, but you have to do your timing right. Better is, of course, to escape from your harness. And I'm, I give the very, very simple way of doing it is definitely don't undo everything until you're right near the ground. Don't have the intention of leaning forward in any way. You're going to be in trouble. You stay sitting in your harness. 
And you open everything up when you're closer to the ground. Your number one is, of course, to be simply facing the glider into the wind, choosing your field, even crabbing left and right on the field. Don't go on the downwind side of the field too much. Rather try and intend to land on the upwind side of any field as a first thing. And then if you want to adjust your distance backwards a bit, for example, V or trees or anything, you can likely be breaking and you will still be reversing faster. So that's the way to do. But don't get hectic. Always stay as calm as you can. Try and keep the, the glider simply flying. Don't do any downwind maneuver whatsoever. Never a 360 in that kind of condition. Um, simply facing into the wind as you drop down vertically. Just let the glider come down. The important part is to stay into the wind, facing into the wind, to be looking backwards at possible landing fields. And if the landing field you see and suddenly you spot one behind you, which is much, much better and you have the height to do it, don't do a 360. Do a left and a right and a left and right and then readjust yourself into another field. But basically facing into the wind at the, at the stage where you're near the ground, you're comfortably um, still in the harness, not leaning forward in any way. Everything's open. You check everything's open. And then as your feet come to the ground, you don't be too keen to do it, not too early to stand down on the ground. You can actually properly even land as if bending your legs and your feet and then leaning forward out of that harness, holding onto the brake toggles. Don't let the brake toggles go. And that harness will shoot up behind you. You're still holding on the brake toggles. Your arms are simply up above your head, like properly up above your head. And um, the whole thing will go and you'll just be holding the brake toggles and the whole glider will store right there and then completely uneventful. You'll be standing on the ground holding your brake toggles and you've got control of your glider and your harness is falling back. It's a great tip for people who are ever landing in not very nice situations. Instead yeah. of trying to steal glider, being dragged over the ground, it's a much, much better thing to do. I think, I think Steph, just my, because my, I've looked into this now since and uh, I totally agree with you that that is the scenario for when it's properly gnarly. If you're going to be going backwards just a little bit, Still better to just to keep everything done up because there is a risk if you hit the wrong turbulence, it's going to get thrown out your harness. So yeah, totally with you. you know, it's part of my it's it's sitting in my locker as as a plan. The only difference that I had, of course, was there were no fields. There was nothing but rocks. <laughs> Those fields are the worst field. All right, let's end it there. It's yeah, been great. Okay, cool. All right. Well, look, um, stay safe, Steph. Um, I really hope that your government starts behaving like a sensible thing. Oh, yeah, no, it's uh, quite good thing it, it, going on in South Africa they, they're today. Killing, they're, killing, they're killing your country, and it's, yeah, it's just so sad. Uh, I got a great uh, video this morning of a minister in the Eastern Cape uh, who is being interviewed, and uh, she actually farts while she's being interviewed. She's speaking, and she goes, uh, and she like really lets out a noisy part. And she goes, she doesn't know what to do for a moment. And then she goes, um, and she says, um, oh, excuse me. And she just goes on speaking. Like, I would have gone cut, 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 you know. And that went out on TV. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, that's pretty much, yeah. That, that kind of says it already, doesn't it? I, it's unbelievable what's going on. It's really, really a shame. I, I love South Africa so much. I love my country. I love where I live. This is, I'm a South African. Although I have a Belgian passport and I can go and I can go and, you know, live in Austria or anything. It's, 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 it's really a shame for me to see many, many, many. And it's, it's actually not my friends and my peers at my uh, standing. They're, they're okay. It's everybody else. It's the 28 people that work in my company. You know, I've got a bunch of them here on the farm with me. It's a pleasure for me to have people who are 
otherwise going to be staying in a shack. And for me to pay really small money to to have them in an outdoor, wonderful place. There's a four-year-old little girl here, a Zimbabwean girl, who is so cute and so lovely. And she she has changed in two months. Unbelievably, the skeptical, very withdrawn, shy girl that I saw two months ago here. Now she's all open. She's always dancing at any moment. She's making musical stuff. Hey, that's awesome, Steph. Well, look, you, you stay safe. Um, I hope you don't have to cut the entire thing, but um, uh, it's been it's been uh, fun. See you soon, buddy. Any see message you. you want to give out to the world in a, in a sentence or two? Yeah, I mean, do whatever the hell you want, but just know the consequences of what the hell you're going to do. And that's that's really the only thing I, I think. If you if you've decided you're going to do something stupid, then that's cool. But what's what upsets me is when people don't know that they're going to do something that's stupid because that's that's just that's that's different. That's selfish. Whereas if you've worked it out, you've made your choice. That's cool. And if other people have and you don't like it, that's also cool. You just you just have to live with it and let people let people live how they want to live. Mm. I agree. I think a, a lot of the laissez-faire, which in French is translated to yeah. let, let, let people do, you know, uh, this kind of attitude, the respect for the fellow human being, Richard, is completely being eroded faster than the speed of light out of our society. It's it's a crying shame for me. It is. And it's one of the things I love about South Africa. You know, the nanny state doesn't really, or until this crisis has never existed there. And to me, that's what I love about the place. No, absolutely. And I think you're speaking of consequences too. You know, people need to be con- uh, conscious of the consequences of, of, of their actions. And, and it's, it's going on every level, you know, from that hilarious minister to, to our president and to his advisors and who's actually making the call, who's wearing the pants in the, in the parliament. We've got a joke going on. Um, we have a, we have an, a cigarette and alcohol ban in South Africa in the house that the Minister of Health is staying. And she used to be married to our ex-President Zuma, who had 743 cases of fraud against him before he became president, never saw any justice, controlled the National Prosecuting Authority and had everybody tied up. The whole story, everybody was on a bribe. Massive, massive corruption. This woman was married to him. She stays in a house that's owned by the biggest tobacco smugglers into South Africa. The illegal uh, tobacco industry is huge here. And, you know, the, the other companies that produce cigarettes, be, be a cigarette, whatever you want to call it, right? But a cigarette, at the end of the day, is everybody's choice to, to smoke a cigarette or not to smoke a cigarette, or to give it up or not. But now it is six or seven times the price of tobacco on the black market. And right now there's a lot on offer. There's suddenly a lot of cigarettes around of brands you've never heard before. <laughs> Smells of fish, eh, my brother? And, excuse me, the worst part of all of this polit- political story is that the minister who's staying in a house owned by the biggest smugglers of, 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 and she's making the decisions over our president. And at the end of the day, it's for her to be enriched by a few tens or hundreds of millions of rands. Meanwhile, we are losing billions of rands due to this lockdown every day. It, 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 wow. I feel, I feel for Cyril because I think Cyril's actually, from what I understand, he's a good guy and he's trying to do, but he's, he's got the ANC have him in an arm lock. Hey, we could go talk about this for hours, but uh, um, cheers, dude.